Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will conclude our three-part series on the history of sport and recreation by discussing the evolution and trends in sport in 19th and 20th century America. We will highlight the similarities between sport and recreation in the modern era and ancient times and tell you how it has changed as well. So if you've ever wondered how the Great Depression led to an increase in sport opportunities or who the father of the playground movement was, this podcast is for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the Sport Professor Podcast. The last couple of weeks, we've engaged in a number of conversations dealing with sports and ancient societies. We've talked about the ancient Egyptians and ancient Assyria and Babylon. We've traced forward to the Greeks with their Olympic Games. We've discussed the Romans and the Colosseums and the Gladiators. We've even progressed into the Dark and Middle Ages and talked a lot about jousting. We continued our discussion of jousting in the Renaissance, moving to the Protestant Reformation, and and talked about how the religious movement led to changes and brought a new civilization over to America. We discussed the early colonial days in the United States and the games and sports that took place in the North North and South, and how those changed and evolved over the course of time with the Industrial Revolution. But we still haven't gotten all the way to the present in our discussion of the evolution of sport throughout time. So today, what I want to do is I want to start where we left off in this post-Industrial Revolution world and continue us forward into the modern day through discussing how sport was viewed and practiced in America and by talking about some of the key figures that led to changes over time to get us to where we are today in our current view and practice of sport and recreation. To set the scene, remember, after the Industrial Revolution, in which more people were moving into the cities, where they had increased amounts of leisure time, increased amounts of discretionary money, we have individuals partaking more and more in different forms of recreation and sport. For example, theaters, dance halls, shooting galleries, billiard parlors, beer gardens, saloons, and red light districts all became very popular on the outskirts of these towns and within these cities. However, in the mid in the mid 1850s. To the early 1900s, these forms of recreation and leisure started to worry people just like in previous generations and in previous eras because the churches and others saw these forms of activities as bringing individuals further away from God and closer to devil worship. Remember, we talked about this idea of idleness is the devil's worship. So, in the 1850s and 60s, we have a movement to provide more structured forms of recreation and sport to individuals to keep them away from these types of activities. This movement became known as the recreational movement, and it was known for the providing of public recreation to individuals. And there was a large focus during this time on adult education. During this time, we also see a number of parks start to form in the United States. In the 1850s up until the early 1900s, parks started to become seen as a way that the government 
could provide some form of space for recreation and help with some of these issues of idleness leading to debauchery in these red light districts or these saloons or beer gardens. And so we start to see in the mid-1800s land set aside specifically for parks. In 1864, we have the first conservation action in setting aside Yosemite Park. The first national park was actually formed in 1872 in Yellowstone with the primary purpose not just of providing land for recreation, but also preserving the national heritage and wildlife. Now, this was very different from European parks, which were only seen as a form of landscape. These parks were seen not only to preserve nature and the heritage of America, but they also were viewed as a place where individuals could go and engage in approved forms of recreation and leisure. In addition to this movement in the mid-1800s to set land aside for recreation opportunities and to preserve it, we also see the birth of voluntary organizations around the same time to help maintain healthy forms of recreation and healthy forms of sport for individuals. We mentioned this in a previous podcast, but we saw in 1851 the birth of the YMCA the Young Men's Christian Association, which primarily came about due to religious desire to provide a benefit to underprivileged youth and to provide a form of recreation in sport to individuals that would go in line with the Christian ideologies that were prevalent at the time. The YMCA then gives birth to the YWCA, the Young Women's Christian Association, in 1866 to provide the same type of opportunities to young women. Again, with the goal of providing these kids with sanctioned activities after school so that they weren't just idle in doing things that would go against the Christian religion. This coincides with the playground movement, which is an outgrowth of, again, the Industrial Revolution, where we have more and more cities coming into existence, becoming larger. More and more housing is built. More and more offices are built. There becomes less and less of an area in these urban places for individuals to go and engage in recreation. So, municipal starts start to be built around this time to provide that space for individuals. Central Park, for example, is built in 1857 as a way to take this green space in New York City and maintain it for recreation and sport purposes. Additionally, these parks were built because many people in the urban areas didn't have a lot of money for recreation opportunities. So the thought was that the government could take some of their money and preserve the land. One of the early examples of this is known as the Boston Sand Gardens, which is a very primitive early park. It was just piles of sand literally dumped behind a church, and they would have volunteers that would come and watch children play in the sand. It doesn't seem like much of a park, but what it did provided a place for children to go where they could engage in free forms of play with each other for no cost to the parents. Just like we saw in other ancient societies, though, not all were welcome in these parts. In fact, there was a large amount of discrimination against who could participate and who could not. In other words, individuals who were seen as lower class, primarily individuals from other countries, immigrants, Mexican immigrants, Hispanic immigrants, Chinese, Asian immigrants, and African Americans were not allowed to come in and play in these parks. Instead, it was primarily for the white middle class individual. So we see this idea of discrimination take hold in the 1800s where we didn't want to provide equal access to everyone or we weren't concerned about everyone participating. We were just concerned about the middle class whites having forms of play available to them where we weren't as worried about the minorities within these areas. 
This growth of parks and the recreation movement continues far past just the mid-1800s and early 1900s. In fact, if we just look at the number of cities that are sponsoring public recreation programs, we can see that this continues to grow and grow and grow. In 1906, there were 41 cities sponsoring public recreation programs. Just 14 years later, in 1920, there were 465 cities sponsoring public recreation programs. And in 1925 to 1935, the number of municipal buildings that were available for recreation quadrupled. So we see a massive push by cities in the early 1900s to provide space, facilities, and opportunities for kids to engage in forms of recreation and sport. Because again, there's this growing, growing belief that these forms of recreation and sport are actually helping kids stay out of trouble and teaching them valuable lessons. And this ideology continues into the modern day. Not only did we see a growth in parks and the providing of recreation sport opportunities at the municipal or local level, but we also see it at the federal level, and specifically with Teddy Roosevelt. Now, Teddy Roosevelt is seen as the father of the federal park system. His focus was on preserving the forest, historical sites, the scientific sites, and wildlife refuge that were in place in America. What he saw was that so many, so much of this space was being developed that we were losing part of what made us America. And as a result, a number of acts start to be passed while he was in president and they continue on afterwards. For example, we have the Reclamation Act of 1902. We have the U.S. Forest Service being formed in 1955. The National Park Service is formed in 1916. We have the Antiquities Act of 1906. Each of these put in place to help preserve our historical land and the wildlife and the forest and the national monuments that are there. But Roosevelt wasn't the only individual that's at a forefront of recreation and sport in the early 1900s and late 1800s. We had other early pioneers as well. People like Joseph Lee, who was born in 1862 and is actually considered the father of the playground movement. He became disillusioned by seeing young boys getting arrested for playing games in the streets. So he decided to create playgrounds in the Boston area to provide play areas for small children. He would designate specific sections as boys sections where he would have sport fields and he would have individual gardens and he set this space aside so that instead of playing in the streets and getting in trouble these children could come to these areas these forms of parks these playgrounds and engage in sanctioned activity in sports in a supervised way and he started something called the playground association of america which he was the president for for 27 years and he promoted continuously this purpose of play this idea that we can teach play through leadership of adult individuals Another early pioneer was Dr. Luther Golick, who headed the first summer school for gymnasium instructors. Now, this might seem like something that is pretty small and insignificant, but the early training of individuals in how to teach sport to children was a massive important, and it actually is the first form of physical education training that we see. Physical education, of course, is one of the precursors to sport management. So Dr. Golick was the first to head a summer school aimed specifically at training people on how to instruct the children that were coming to these playgrounds and coming to these places for sport. 
He was also the first president of the Campfire Girls, which was an organization that was set to provide recreation opportunities for young women. He was a big part of the establishment of the Playground Association of America in 1906, and he really, really pushed the expansion of these programs, not just for boys, but really promoted and expanded work programs for girls and women. And he was one of the pioneers that said not only should young boys be involved in these sporting and recreation activities, but we should also get these young girls involved as well. And the last person I want to talk about that was a major pioneer was Jane Addams. Jane Addams was a social work pioneer who fought for the youth and immigrant families and the poor people in urban America. Remember we said these early playgrounds that wanted to promote sanctioned activity for children were highly discriminatory and that they only really focused on providing opportunities for the white middle class children. So what Jane Addams did is she said that we should be providing those same opportunities for all youth, including the poor and the immigrants. And to do this, she established the Hall House in Chicago with this main idea that recreation can be used to reinforce traditional values and that actually play recreation and sport was a great way for foreigners to get quote unquote Americanized, to learn about American customs, to learn the language, to learn how Americans acted. And so Jane really pushed this and got a number of youth immigrants and poor individuals in the urban America involved with recreation and worked to tear down the barriers that were keeping them from getting involved for so many years. As we are building parks and the playground movement is growing and gaining steam and many advocates are pushing the use of recreation and play as a means to learn valuable skills or to indoctrinate individuals into American culture, not everyone shared these ideas. In fact, there was growing concerns in the early 20th century with how popular leisure and leisure activities was becoming. People feared that any type of unstructured leisure time would lead to Problem. This fear began to grow more and more, not just with children, but with adults, because the industrialization of America continued to lead to decreased working hours, which meant more leisure time. So pool and billiard parlors and dantars and vaudeville shows and all these forms of commercial amusement that were popping up started to make many fear that immoral behavior and sexual corruption was occurring within the white middle class America. In fact, there became certain terms like white slaves, which stood for prostitution that became popular because people feared that the more leisure time that these young men would have, they would be more likely to engage in this debaucherous activities. So what happens is the government steps in in the early 20th centuries. And as we see the playground movement exploding, the government steps in and they start to place regulations to lessen the amount of recreation activities that individuals are gauging it. That requires certain things in order for these commercial organizations or these commercial forms of amusement to open up. For example, the government steps in and, and requires individuals have a permit to run certain types of venues. So in order to run a pool hall, you had to get a permit. In this way, the government's able to actually limit, in their minds, the amount of improper recreation individuals can engage in. Because what the government really wanted to do is they wanted to uphold these Victorian values that were governing the time. 
in the early 20th century, we continue to see voluntary associations opening up, though. So not only do we have the Playground Association of America form, but we also have associations like the National Associations of Boys Clubs form in 1906. We have the Boy Scouts and the Campfire Girls form in 1910. We have opportunities for adults as well. We have the Rotary Club, the Kiwanis Club, the Lions Club, all founded between 1910 and 1917. So we have an expanding of recreation organizations, organizations that provide an outlet for people to come in, engage in social forms of recreation with each other. At the same time, we continue to see the growth of the YMCA and the YWCA up to more than 1.5 million members in 1926. The Playground Association, as we mentioned, was founded in 1906 as well with the purpose to develop informational and promotional services to assist people of all ages in using leisure time constructively. They created what was called the Normal Course of Play, which was a curriculum plan of courses on play leadership. They wanted to teach individuals to be leaders through engaging in forms of recreation, sport, and play, an idea that we still practice and that's still valued in today's culture. But we didn't just see these nonprofit organizations form. We also saw schools get involved with recreation. They created after school and vacation programs, which provided structured recreation, leisure, and sports for students. Instead of allowing them just to go home, they created these opportunities so that they could do something constructively under the supervision of an adult. Again, this is something that we still see today. We see after school programs for parents that work, where their student can stay after school hours and engage in structured activities. We see this all way up into high school. Think about it. The form of high school sports is just this. It's the idea of providing structured after school activities to youth so that they're engaging in something constructive instead of going out and getting in trouble. Schools also start to develop more playgrounds. So just like we saw with the initial Boston Sand Gardens, which was just a pile of sand behind a church, the schools start to develop specific playground areas and they let the community come in and engage in recreation there and social activities. We see schools building gyms and assembly rooms and swimming pools and music music and art rooms and in developing outdoor areas for people. So the schools start to see the value that is brought by engaging in these activities. This is akin very much to the Greeks in the Renaissance era where we thought of physical activity as a way to develop the well-rounded person. We thought that if we built these spaces, these gyms, swimming pools, and, and outdoor areas and allowed individuals to engage in physical activity out there, not only could we provide structured options for them to engage in that was keeping them off the streets and from getting in trouble, but we could also develop the well-rounded person. And so today we continue with that. Go by schools that are elementary schools or middle schools. We'll see designated playground areas. We'll see gymnasiums. We'll see after school activities and sport teams that are developed to further these ideas of the early 20th century into today. This big push in recreation, leisure, and sport in the early 20th century didn't last forever though. And just like everything else, these ideas were hit hard by the Great Depression. The Great Depression starts in 1929. It's marked by mass amounts of unemployment. In 1933, for example, the unemployment rate in America reached 24.9%. In response to the Great Depression, the government tries to stimulate the economy through a number of public work programs, which on their surface don't seem like they would have a great tie to recreation and sport. But what happens is these work programs actually are set to building a number of facilities and areas that become very important for future sporting activities. For example, there was the Federal Emergency Relief Administration, which financed construction of recreation facilities. For example, parks and swimming pools were built from 
from this. There was the Civil Works Administration, which built and improved approximately 3,500 playgrounds and athletic fields across the country. There was the Civilian Conservation Crops, which the federal government spent over $1.5 billion dollars between 1932 and 1937 on, and this organization went and built camps, buildings, picnic grounds, trails, swimming pools, and other recreational facilities for individuals. And there was the Work Progress Administration, which spent $11 billion on recreation-based projects. They built 8,500 gyms, 750 swimming pools, 1,000 ice rinks, 64 ski jumps across the country. So the Great Depression leads to an increase in the amount of time of idleness and really hurts the employment numbers in the country. But what results from that from a recreation and sports standpoint is actually quintessential to what we are as America. What happens is the federal government is a means to try to stimulate the economy and get people jobs. They invest billions and billions of dollars in developing spaces that individuals can go and use for recreation sporting activities. And without the Great Depression, a lot of those facilities might not have ever been built. And in fact, without without those facilities, we might not have continued to grow and emphasize sport and recreation the way we have over the years. So that brings us to the mid-1900s as we get closer and closer to modern day. And what we can start to do now is we can start to look at the modern day and ask ourselves, how's recreation, leisure, and sport different today from the mid-20th century? What changes have we seen in the types of activities, opportunities, and the culture that surround these? Well, the Great Depression allows for us to have the facilities for us to engage in recreation and sport going forward. And we see that over the next 60 years, the amount of sport, arts, hobbies, outdoor recreation, fitness programs, continues this massive growth across the country. So as we see with the Great Depression, the government spending on recreation and sport activities lays the foundation for us to be able to continue to grow in the future. And as we get out of the Great Depression and we start to see the amount of money that we're making out of the country continue to expand year after year after year, we start to see more jobs returning, the amount of unemployment drop. We see people making more money. We again see a culture that's reflective of the Industrial Revolution, where people have more money to spend on recreation activities. And as a result, we see a massive growth in the number of people who are visiting parks. We see a massive growth in people who are traveling for pleasure. We see the sale of sporting equipment increase. We see the number of families that are owning TVs skyrocket. We see the number of people that are engaging in sport or engaging in outdoor recreation or fitness programs drastically increase over time. So what we're seeing is more people people having more ability to engage in recreation and sport, which leads a lasting impression. After this growth of national influence that led to increased opportunities for individuals to travel and engage in recreation and sporting activities, in 1970s and 80s, as recreation and sport is growing, we also see the government increasing the amount it's spending on a yearly basis, which results in higher taxes to pay for the government's expenditures. Now, people don't like higher taxes, so individuals start to protest how high the taxes are and they start to protest how the government is spending money. For example, the growing population meant that there was a growing number of children in schools, which meant they needed more money to run the schools. However, oftentimes the school districts were forced to freeze their expenditures to try to create a balanced budget and reduce their spending. This lead to individuals start to revolt against the taxes, leading to tax cutbacks, which means the governments have to cut back their spending as well because they don't have as much money coming in. So that means cutbacks oftentimes come in things like parks 
libraries, different forms of public recreational services, different social services that are being, being provided. So where we had a ton of money coming in to support recreation and sport and everything that was around it within the Great Depression and then following the Great Depression in the 70s and 80s, because taxes became so high that people started to revolt, tax cutbacks were needed to satisfy the public. And as a result, that money that was once available for forms of recreation, sport, and the services that surrounded it starts to dry up. This leads to challenges for those individuals who are managing the parks and the recreation and sporting facilities. They had to come up with ways to cut back their spending so they could operate on reduced budgets. And so recreation and park agencies needed to find ways to supplement their governmental money to account for their cutbacks. So the cities are hurt the most in this case, and they had to start charging for activities and use of rec space and renting equipment. So where once it was free, now they were charging individuals for those services, which means less people can afford to engage in forms of recreation. As a result, recreation began to be viewed as an industry in and of itself. And we have this move to privatize and commodify all forms of recreation and sport. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to privatize or to commodify? To privatize means that we're moving these operations out side of the government. So the government is now not overseeing recreation and sports. We're moving into private industries. To commodify means to make money off of, to charge a cost and use it to make a profit. It means to turn something into a commodity that can be bought and sold. And so these governmental cutbacks lead to this privatization and this commodification of recreation and sports, which we still see today. Just as we start to see changes occurring due to governmental cutbacks and spendings, we also see changes starting to occur in recreation and sport as a result of a change in demographics. For example, we started to put more and more emphasis on using sport and recreation to develop the physical fitness of our youth population. And this was built in a large part around the 1950s due to the low level of fitness of people wanting to roll in the military. And so we saw sport and recreation as a means to train individuals and get them physically fit so that way when they wanted to enroll in the military or when we needed them to enroll in the military, they could. The government's need for individuals who are physically fit and the decreased amount of spending that the government was doing on recreation and sport programs were not the only times that we saw the government getting involved in mid to late 20th century with sport and recreation. We also saw them get involved with numerous forms of legislation to try to make sure that recreation, sport, and leisure opportunities were available to everyone. And so we see them passing a number of laws, all like the Rehabilitation Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, to try to make sure that those people with disabilities would still be able to participate in and benefit from the recreation and sport opportunities that were being provided by the government and government agencies. We all see the government passed Title IX in 1972, which just like the Rehabilitation Act and the Americans with Disabilities Act, seeks to end discrimination against a specific minority, in this case against women, and provide women equal access to recreation, sport, leisure, and educational opportunities that are provided by the government. Now, that's a pretty quick and fast overview of the mid-1800s through the 1900s. But I just wanted to focus on a couple of key things within that time frame. What I want to spend time doing now is going over the 1990s and beyond, the modern-day history of recreation, sport, and leisure, and talking about the different trends that we see within these time frames within the context of our ancient societies that we've already discussed. So the first major trend that we see is this commodification and privatization of recreation and sport. 
gamification is, is defined as the process of taking any product or service and commercializing it by designing and marketing it to yield the greatest degree of financial return or profit. So the idea here is that we are taking sport and recreation and the products that are around sport and recreation and the services that are around sport and recreation and we are designing and marketing it to try to sell to make money. So we are taking youth sport, for example, and we are trying to design it in a way that we can sell it to a consumer to make money off of it. And this trend, even though it begins in the 1970s and 80s with the reduction of taxes and the reduction of governmental funding for these recreation and sport opportunities really starts to come into full force in the 1990s where we see the growth in the number of organizations that are trying to provide and sell sport and recreation to consumers. We also see this increase in privatization, which is the practice of having private corporations take on the responsibilities for providing services, maintaining facilities, or performing other functions that were formerly done by government agencies. So just like we mentioned in the 70s and 80s, where we see this reduction in tax money going towards recreation and sport organizations. As a result, many of these organizations privatize and they move outside of the government, meaning they actually have to commodify or they have to try to package their products or services and market them out to sell so that people want to buy them. So we see in the 1990s this massive growth in commodification and privatization of recreation and sport opportunities. This commodification and privatization of sport is really reflected in one of the other major trends that we see in the 1990s, which is this class stratification and its effect on sport. Now, class stratification is something we've already talked about in ancient societies, but let me highlight it here in the context of modern day sports. When we talk about class stratification, what we're discussing is the economic difference in what people make. And we can categorize this in three areas. We can say there's the upper class, there's the middle class, and there's the lower class. The upper class individuals are those individuals in our society which make the most. We generally consider individuals in the upper class if they're making six figures or more. We then have the middle class individuals who are making anywhere between 70, 80,000 down to right around 30 to $40,000 a year. And below that, we would have the lower class. Just like in ancient societies, the class that you belong to actually has a big influence on the types of recreation in sport that you participate in. So let's take a second to rewind and remind ourselves of those ancient societies and how class stratification worked with them. If we just go back all the way back to Mesopotamia in the ancient Assyrians. Remember, the ancient Assyrians engaged in lion hunting, but we pointed out very specifically that the only individuals that were really engaging in the lion hunting were the royals of the time, were the kings, were the rulers, or the upper class individuals, because those were the only in individuals that could afford it. If we fast forward not too far into the, into the future, into the Romans... Remember, we talked about the gladiators. Where who were the ones that were the gladiators? They were primarily the slaves, prisoners, the lowest of the low-class individuals. Those were the ones that were primarily engaging in those activities. We move forward in our discussion of the Middle Ages in things like jousting. Jousting was done by knights. Those were individuals that were more in the upper class. The lower class individuals engaged in sports like archery, we said. They engaged in more indoor sports and card games because they were not permitted to engage in those activities. 
even in early America, we saw class stratification. Remember, we talked in colonial America about the Southern culture and the Southern societies and how we would use slaves just like the Romans did to engage in Mandingo boxing matches where the rich white landowners would pit their slaves against one another. We also used slaves as jockeys, we said. So again, we had the lowest class individuals participating in sports, more for the amusement of the upper class. Now, let's look at how this plays out in modern society. We still have class stratification with sports, just like in these ancient societies. Think about upper class sports. These are going to be sports that require a large amount of money and free time in order to participate. Sports like polo, sports like golf, in which you You need very expensive equipment in polo. You need horses. That's extremely expensive. In golf, you need clubs. You need to be able to pay the green fees. You also need large amounts of time in order to participate in these activities and events. And the only people that have those large amounts of time to be able to do it are often the upper class because the middle and lower class are working more hours in a given week and they don't have the free time to set aside. So we have these upper class sports where we keep the lower class or middle class individuals from participating participating by making them too expensive. Now, middle class sports. Middle class sports are going to be sports that are much more team-oriented sports. Sports like basketball, baseball, soccer. A lot of what we classify as our Olympic sports are seen as middle class sports. They still require money and time to participate, but it is far less money than is required for the upper class sports. And those sports, just like upper class sports, once you keep everyone below them out, middle class sports oftentimes try to do the same thing, where they set standards that enable only those in the middle class and upper class to engage and participate. For example, you might be playing in a recreation baseball league, which we would classify as a middle class sport, but they only want the people from their area playing in it. So what do they do? They make it so that if you live within a certain zip code or certain area, you pay less to participate. Anyone from outside of that area has to pay a much higher fee. Well, the upper class people from outside that area, if they want to play in it, they can afford it. But the lower class individuals individuals that don't live in that area cannot afford it. So they are setting up these restraints to make sure that the lower class individuals don't participate. And finally, we have those sports that are much more popular at the lower class. These are going to be the sports that are much more violent in which have a much higher incidence of individuals getting hurt. Things like boxing, MMA, karate, those violent sports, where the risk of injury is substantially higher to those individuals. Other sports that are considered lower class sports, uh, oftentimes things like hunting and fishing are considered lower class sporting activities. So just like in ancient societies where we see this class stratification, difference in sporting activities that individuals in different social classes engage, we still see those same things happening all the way into modern day. One of the things that has changed over time is the impact of technology on our leisure activities. Now, this might not be the first thing that comes to your mind when you think about sports and recreation in the modern age, but technology has made our sport, recreation, and leisure activities easier than ever. Just think about it. How many of you like to run and use some type of GPS tracking device, whether it's an app on your phone or if you have a Garmin watch or if you go home and you get on your computer and you use an internet site to map and track your run. So we have GPS that makes engaging in this form of recreation, sport and leisure easier than ever. We have 
uh, cell phones that are MB3 players where we can use for forms of recreation and sport. I can use my cell phone to track my run using GPS. I can listen to or the radio or podcast or music while I'm running. I can also, after I'm done running, then use my phone to get on the internet to look at scores of baseball games or football games. I can even just watch the games on my device. So technologies make the consumption of sport, the engaging in sports, easier than ever. Another thing that is different in the modern age is the trends that we're seeing with health and wellness, where in the past we saw recreation and sport as this means to help individuals become more physically fit. Now in America, we see the highest levels of obesity we've ever had, both in adults and in children. And this is in large part due to a growth in the amount of inactivity in our population. So when we combine the influence of technology on recreation and sport, what happens is more individuals are choosing to engage in forms of recreation or forms of leisure that actually don't require them to be active, to be outside, to be physical. Instead, they can be on their devices and engaging in a form of leisure without being active, which in turn results in a population that is more obese, that is less active, that is less healthy, and that doesn't have as good a quality of life. What's interesting about this trend in inactivity is that we're actually, as an industry of recreation and sport, working harder than ever to provide more activities to more varied populations. So as we see in our demographic trends where we have a growth in the number of who are 65 and older, where we need more and more varied activities for them because they have this increased amount of leisure time due to the fact that they're retired. We are providing more and more activities to those individuals as an industry and yet we still see a continual growth in inactivity because we have so many children who are not being active. This might be in part due to another demographic trend which is the growth in single parent households. Again, this directly link might not be evident. But if we have single parent households, what that oftentimes mean is that that one parent is working in order to support themselves and their children. That causes their, them to have less time to be able to take their children to these different sporting and recreation activities, which means children are more apt to stay home, be inactive on their couch, engage in a form of recreation that relies more heavily on technology like video games or watching TV or being on their phones rather than being outside engaged in sports. So even though we're providing more and more opportunities for these individuals, the fact that we see this growth in single parent households means that we need to do better at meeting that specific growing population. The increased amount of inactivity is also reflected in the decrease in the amount of work ethic that we see with our youth. And this is marked by a kind of a change in our consciousness as a society. It used to be that people thought that work was the end-all be-all in life, that we worked hard to make money for our families to provide them a better life. But with the new millennial generation, this thought process has changed pretty drastically. And studies have shown that work ethic over the years is continuously decreasing. Now that obviously reflects on work specifically, but that also goes to show that people are more okay with being inactive, that people are more okay with getting their recreation through sitting on their couch and consuming sport rather than participating in it. 
While we could continue to go on and discuss more about present day sports and how they've changed over time, this is where our conversation ends today. We've tracked over the past three podcasts the evolution of sport, citing specifically different trends that we have seen, most notably the fact that governments have continuously been involved with sport and sporting activities over time. The fact that sport has been used as a way to maintain physical fitness and train individuals for warfare. The role of religion in sport in dictating what type of sporting activities are allowed and on what days they are allowed. Intertangling of sport in education. And finally, the role of social class in sport. Hopefully this conversation has enlightened you a bit to the fact that our modern day sports are not something that is completely unique. In fact, it is something that dates back to ancient societies and will continue to be a part of future societies as well. As always, if you have any questions about the history of sport or about any other sport-related topics, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at thesportprofessor or on our website, thesportprofessor.com.